Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you again for helping us get past 30 million downloads here on the Lincoln Project podcast. You have us at the top of the charts and I cannot say thank you enough, but I can ask you for one more favor. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell people that are interested in the pro-democracy movement, tune in, hear what we have to say, share it with your friends, share it with your family. Want to say thank you. And now on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Matt Bennett, co-founder and executive vice president for public affairs at Third Way, a national think tank that champions modern center-left ideas, as well as co-founder of Shieldback, a group which was dedicated to defending moderate Democratic members of Congress in 2022. Prior to his time at Third Way and Shieldpack, Matt worked on a variety of campaigns, including those of Michael Dukakis and Bill Clinton, where he also served as deputy assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs. He has a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Pennsylvania and a Juris Doctor from the University of Virginia School of Law. Matt, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here. All right, man. So lots to talk about here. Let's talk about 2022, the election. As we're recording this, we're a day away from the Senate runoff in Georgia. My feeling is the election night was good for democracy, bought us some time and space, but we shouldn't over-index on the success that Democratic candidates had. I think that's exactly right. I mean, look, the fact is we dodged a huge bullet. It is now pretty much impossible for MAGA forces to steal the presidential election, at least in ways that they were preparing to do so before 2020, because they didn't get the offices they would need if they were going to do that. You know, they had these crazy election deniers running for secretary of state and governor in swing states. They got pretty close. They got terrifyingly close in the Arizona governor's race, but they didn't win. And so democracy, to some extent, is safe. But man, they did better than they should have. That's something that I think when I talk to folks who aren't neck deep in this stuff like you and I are every day, I said, these people in a normal time should have lost by like 30, <laughs> right? Like these people, they, I mean, the idea that they won their primaries was scary enough. But as I talk about, you know, as we're staring down the barrel of Georgia, you know, a rainy day, the wrong direction, you know, a couple thousand people decide not to wait in line. You know, we could be calling Herschel Walker senator elect. And the idea that even in as close a race as that, that someone who's, as I've mentioned before, so wholly unqualified could come that close, I think is concerning and one for all of us to remind ourselves that, you know, look, yes, we all did what we needed to do. And it was probably as good an outcome as anybody could have expected. But the fight is far from over. Look, we need hats that say make secretaries of state obscure again. <laughs> there is no reason that Americans should be engaged in thinking about secretary of state races outside of their own state and even inside their own state for that matter. But we do because we have people who are 
unbelievably unfit for office running for these what turns out to be quite important positions because very prominent people have called fundamental constitutional issues into question. And there are people that came very close to becoming governor of their state who, if they had had a meeting in the Oval Office in the Bush White House, you know, 20 years ago, that would have been a scandal. To your point, we have defined deviancy down, in the words of the late Daniel Patrick Moynihan, for the Republican Party in just breathtaking ways. What was the thing that surprised you most about 2022? I think the fact that mainstream candidates beat extreme candidates almost everywhere it really mattered. Now, obviously not everywhere. There are plenty of extreme lunatics who are coming to the House of Representatives, and there are a couple that are coming to the Senate. But for the most part, where there were very radical people like Mastriano and Kerry Lake running against normie Democrats, they lost. And that, I think, underscored just how wrong we got one big thing around 2022, which is that democracy actually did matter to voters. They may not have been thinking about it when they went into the polls, they may not have been thinking, well, this person has different views than I do about the Electoral Count Act, but they thought this person is a freak and I cannot support them for governor. Well, I mean, you know, that's the thing. I don't know how many surveys you've written over the years. For me, it's been a lot, but I can't remember a time until I don't know when maybe 2016, 2017, when, you know, issues that concern you most, when democracy was ever A, B, C, D, E, F, whatever, because we all took it for granted, right? Like it wasn't on the list because it didn't need to be just like we didn't need to know who our secretary of state was other than you went to get a business license or something from them because it wasn't something in our consciousness. It would never have occurred to any of us to ask that question on a poll, even when we were at a point in our politics that seemed really vicious. I mean, when Newt Gingrich came in with his revolutionaries in the 90s, that struck me as a Democrat as pretty rough, you know, that we disagreed very vehemently on a whole bunch of things. And it seemed like politics really couldn't get any lower or nastier or rougher. And we were so wrong because Trump launched us in a completely new place in which democracy itself is a question on people's ballots, which is stunning. And I want to get to Trump in 2024 in a minute, but I want to stick with this. You mentioned Gingrich is reported, I think, late last week as we're recording this in Axios or maybe over the weekend that Gingrich was telling Republicans, Joe Biden is eating our lunch on policy. And I know you all think that policy doesn't matter, but it does. And he's winning and we're losing. What's interesting, though, is that he's gone full MAGA. He went full MAGA because he always wants to be in charge. He went full MAGA because his wife third wife, desperately wanted to be ambassador to the Vatican because she's a devout Catholic, which that's a whole other show that probably belongs on TMZ, not here. But now he's sort of like, hey, you know what? Like, if you keep this up, if you don't have something to be for, you're going to get killed again. And I, I thought that was interesting. Gingrich is crazy. My dad worked for him for a million years. I've known him for a long time, but he wasn't stupid. Oh, no, he's super smart. He is shall we say, flexible. <laughs> I mean, he, was, he did a television ad with Nancy Pelosi about climate change. Right. You know? Well, he got paid for it, I think, right? You're right. So, you know, <laughs> flexibility is driven by various things. But to your point, he has gone full MAGA. He threw in fully with the cult and with Trump. And for him to come out and say to Republicans that this is a problem for them is interesting. It is a little bit of a piece with 
sucking up to Trump because I think Trump's critique of why things went badly in 2022 wasn't because he's crazy and the people who follow him are crazy. It's uh, you people let Joe Biden do more than you should have. And so that's probably in service of the Trump story also. Well, I think that's right. But zooming into the Capitol here in a few weeks, Republicans will have the majority in the United States House of Representatives. We don't yet really know what that means. We know what they've told us they want to do, that they want to cut off funding for Ukraine. They want to shut down the government unless they get cuts to Social Security and Medicare. You know, the Hunter Biden kerfuffle, which is, I think, even in our ridiculous times has now reached ridiculous proportions if such a thing is possible. You know, they tried, I think, right around Labor Day, the House Republicans did to do this commitment to America. Well, I think, Matt, personally, you've been there closer than I have, that they realized that they were hemorrhaging suburban female voters and they were trying to figure out a way to get them back. They spent approximately like four days on it. It was ham-handed, half-assed. And then, of course, the centerpiece of it was a press conference with Kevin McCarthy standing there with Marjorie Taylor Greene over his shoulder. And now she appears to be someone who will be a leader in this new conference. You cannot make any of this stuff up. I mean, again, like <laughs> that person would not have come within 400 yards of the leader of either party through most of our career. And there were always weirdos in particularly in the House, but they were marginalized. And now because of the weird distorting lens of social media, they are very powerful. And she and the other wackos on the far right are going to have enormous power. And I think all the things you outline are right. They're going to do things like, you know, bring impeachment articles against the Secretary of Homeland Security, which is obviously what America is clamoring for, an impeachment of the Secretary of Homeland Security. I mean, they're going to do a whole bunch of things that make voters think that they're crazy. And I have to tell you, while I never liked the fact that crazy people are in charge of either chamber of Congress, probably for prospects in 2024, it's not the worst thing that could have happened to Democrats. Let me ask you this. There was a story I was reading earlier today that McCarthy does not have the 218 votes he needs to be elected Speaker of the House, even with his own conference. Obviously, no Democrat's going to vote for him. But now you have the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan and a lot of their attendance talk radio personalities calling Matt Gates and some of these other people who have sworn never to vote for Kevin McCarthy as the radicals. They're branding them as crazy, which is sort of mind-bending in its own way, which is when they are tuned and attenuated to their own power, I think it was an indication that while I think that Marjorie Taylor Greene is ignorant and dangerous, she is not stupid, if that makes sense. Look, she's not going to win many Mensa awards, but she understands the rise to power and her influence within it. And these people who she has gone shoulder to shoulder with Gates, you know, on every street corner in America are now getting in her way. So they're attacking them, which just goes to show it's all self-interest, right? It's all about their own power. Yeah. And also it's what always happens with revolutionaries. I mean, they fed Robespierre to the guillotine eventually. You know, that's what they do. They turn on each other. And the Mensheviks didn't last long. No, they did not. I think what you'll find is there will be some of this infighting even among the extremists in the Republican House. In the end, probably McCarthy somehow limps across the finish line as speaker, but it isn't certain. I mean, he lost 30 votes when they had their caucus vote, and he can only lose four or maybe five, and so he's got some work to do. 
Let me ask this. And I was thinking about this as someone who I haven't done it in a while, but you know, like so many political consultants, operatives, whatever you want to call guys like me who lived outside Washington, D.C., you know, election years were about campaigns and off years were about PR work, public affairs work. Uh, you know, Matt, you've probably sat in some of these offices or met with some of these folks like, you know, there are so many associations for every industry and some industries have multiple associations because they're all backed by one particular heavy hitter and, you know, company. And so, you know, they're fighting or whatever it is. And these are great jobs, right? Two, three hundred, four hundred thousand bucks a year to sit around and write press releases that no one will ever read. And it's an industry. I call it the political bureaucracy. And I'm wondering, do any of the folks that occupy those jobs, most of whom had some political background, whether or not it was in campaigns, most likely maybe in policy on the Hill or in an administration, do they have any idea that their world is in for a radical change too? When you try and send a lobbyist to somebody's office and they're like, I don't care what you want, you can't buy me off. That's one. And then two, that just like they don't seem to understand, especially those who come out of Republican politics, that when you have the leader of your party and Donald Trump is the leader of your party espousing the destruction of the foundational document of the nation, that you are now in league with somebody like that. Do you think they understand that or do you think there's blinders on? They definitely do not understand that. It is stunning the level to which they don't get it. I mean, to your point about associations, there's a million of them. The ones that have whole buildings are really shocking. We used to rent space from the Obstetric Nurses Association. You know, I'm sure the Obstetric Nurses have a lot of business in Washington, but they had like this huge block of commercial real estate. But I think even more than the associations, the companies run by mostly kind of business-oriented Republican C-suite types have not gotten their head around the fact that the Republican Party that they knew is gone. The Republican Party of Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney is dead. The Republican Party of Donald Trump hates all establishment figures, including them. And to your point, their lobbyists are going to show up in these offices and be told, we are not on your team. We are not on the same side. And the Chamber of Commerce is already getting that from Republicans. So I do think that there has been a fundamental sea change in American politics and that the corporate community definitely has not gotten that memo. The flip side of that is that the Republican Party, supposed to be the party of business, small, medium and big, is now the one that's perfectly willing to use federal power, state power, local power, not in the service of regulation for a ostensibly a good purpose, right, a protective purpose over a citizen or a consumer but punitively. We just saw this with BlackRock, which is a massive, massive hedge fund deal in Florida, where Florida said, you guys invest in stuff with this. Was it environmental, social justice, and what's ESG? What's the G stand for? Uh, environment, social justice, and uh, I can't remember. Look, you and I live this, and we don't know the G. And then you saw where I live, too, that the attorney general of Utah is about to say, if there are companies like this, I think they were taken on Vanguard. These are not like, oh, you know what? I have a fundamental economic disagreement with their investment strategy. It is they're doing this. I can score political points off of it. So that's what I'm going to do, even if it's at the expense of my own citizens. It's amazing. DeSantis is doing this in extraordinary ways. Obviously, he did it with Disney. Disney's dispute was not over their tax status. The dispute was over the don't say gay bill. And they took away, DeSantis took away their tax status, although now it looks like it's going to be restored because, you know, you can't pick a fight with Disney if you're the governor of Florida. 
and now that Bob Iger, former chairman, now is chairman again, yeah, it's exactly. like, all right, well, let's, you want to play this? Like the mouse will put his armor on, I guess, right? Exactly. But the other, you know, there have been other instances of this. The Tampa Bay Raids did something mildly good around gun safety after either Parkland or the Orlando nightclub massacre. And DeSantis uses line item veto to go after them and a stadium that they were going to build for spring training. So he has been punitive on purely political grounds using the power of government. And I think it is important for people to understand that that is just as anti-democratic, that is just as serious a threat to our constitutional democracy as the getting involved in the casting and counting of votes the way Trump and his allies have done. And DeSantis is a real threat to democracy that I don't think people have really begun to understand yet. But Matt, as a Democrat who's been in Democratic politics for a long time, how does the Democratic Party start to say, you think we're not the party of business? You think we're the party of communism and socialism? Look at these guys. Like, how do we get the Democratic Party to start saying that stuff? I mean, I'm so glad you asked me that. This has been a frustration of mine for years. The idea that Republicans were the party of business and Democrats were not. We've created since I think 1989, we've created 42 million jobs in the United States. 40 million of them were created under Democratic presidents. The stock market booms under Democrats. We go into recession under Republicans. It happens over and over and over. It is not a fluke. And look, I get it that CEOs and their compensation are often tied to quarterly earnings. And quarterly earnings can be driven in part by tax policy and by regulation. But again, the idea that they are dealing with Republicans who are mostly interested in cutting their taxes and cutting red tape is wrong. They have woken up in a completely new world. Democrats provide for companies what they say they want most, which is certainty. If you ask a CEO, are you more confident that you understand the future under Joe Biden than you were under Donald Trump? they would have to be insane to say no. So I'm hoping that there is a change in the way that American business thinks about Democrats because it does matter in terms of money and in terms of power. They have a lot of both. But that's the thing that I'm noodling on, which is, you know, so many of these billionaire types that are enormous donors to Republican causes who also tend to be corporate titans, you know, masters of the universe types, they always claim, you know, it's less regulation and less taxation. But I feel like that that's oversimplified and it doesn't make sense because if you are Stephen Schwartzman, if the personal tax rate went from 36.2 to 41.8, I mean, I know that would be an enormous jump, but whatever, like your life is not going to change. These are the types of people I think, and we're seeing this in real time with like an Elon Musk is these are people who now outside of the bounds of biology are literally able to create their own realities, Matt. And I think that's what they like. And I think that that's what a Donald Trump gives them, which is I tell him he can do whatever he wants and he gives me lower taxes, lower regulations. But what I really get at the end of the day is nobody telling me what I can and can't do. Yeah, that's probably right. And I think you're seeing this kind of red pilling of the ultra billionaire class playing out in real time with Elon Musk in this kind of bizarro world way. But if you look at the other billionaires that have gotten involved in politics on the right, most of them are these kind of hyper libertarians who weirdly are attracted to demagogues who want to be authoritarians. I don't know why Peter Thiel, who purports to you know, want to live in a government-free zone in the middle of the ocean or something, is interested in a guy that wants unfettered power for himself. But there's no talking to these people. Well, I think that's also where we sort of step through the looking glass, that there's the trip from logic to insanity is not very long. 
No, right. it's quicker every day. <laughs> it certainly is. And there is no logic. I mean, if you try to get any of the billionaires, Uline or any of these guys to tell you exactly why they support Trump, they might go to religious reasons. I, you know, I'm virulently opposed to abortion. And I like the fact that, you know, he put three people in the court that got rid of it, or I don't like trans stuff. There's some of that. And that, I guess, is, I find it repellent, but it's at least understandable. At least it's an ethos, dude. Exactly. But Thiel is, I don't know what the hell these people are thinking, like Thiel and his minions, like Blake Masters and J.D. Vance, who come from that world and have either become complete cynics, like Elise Stefanik, who knows better and has just thrown in with Trump for power, or have morphed their ideology in such a way that it fits with Trump's, and I can't figure out how that works. Yeah, no, and just as an aside on Elise Stefanik, who... You know, it wouldn't surprise me if she knifes McCarthy in the end, but we'll see how she's going to play that. She also, Matt, serves on the board of directors of a group called the National Endowment for Democracy. And I have tweeted at them a couple of times recently, like I did it the day she endorsed Trump. I'm like, how is this person on your board of directors? Then after he said the craziness about shredding the Constitution, I asked them again, you know, and when I ask people in that world, you know, there's the NED, there's the IRI, which is the International Republican Institute, which my dad did work for for years, which was sort of Republicans helping democracies, the National Democratic Institute, which same idea, Democrats going to help other countries with their democracies. Like they probably get a lot of money from Congress. And if they throw her off their board of directors, they're afraid they won't get their appropriation. I'm like, then you're part of the problem. You're no longer the National Endowment for Democracy. You're the National Endowment for I want to stay in business. Yeah, which is, you know, the endemic disease of Washington is once you create something, it never, ever goes away. And I, I think you're exactly right. The idea that election deniers are involved with a group that is ostensibly about promoting democracy is appalling. But, you know, it's just a Tuesday in Washington. So let's talk about the Democratic Party. So you and Third Way represent what I call it the center left, yes. moderate Democrats. Yep, um, so how do you guys see the current political environment vis-a-vis -vis the Democratic Party? Obviously, you've got President Biden and the current House and Senate have had enormous legislative success, picked up huge numbers of legislative seats in the midterm election. So how do you see the makeup of the party politically and ideologically right now? Well, I think we're really of two minds about it. On the one hand, to your point, things have gone very well. Joe Biden is a moderate. He has governed mostly, not entirely, but mostly as a moderate. And he's gotten big things done with the help of moderates in the Senate. And I think we have to tip our hat to Joe Manchin, who, you know, held out for a long time, wasn't for some of the things that we hoped he would be for. There might be people throwing their phones across I the I understand, room right now, but I you gotta you, know you gotta give the guy in the end, he was the key to a deal that unlocked the biggest spending on climate change in human history. It's going to make an enormous difference, along with a whole bunch of other things. There are things that we left on the table that we didn't get done that we wished had gotten done for sure, but that is always the case. And if you compare Biden's first two years to the first two years we had under Clinton, under Obama, both those guys did some big things. Certainly the ACA was huge, but they also left some huge things on the table, like Clinton's health care plan and, and Obama's cap and trade deal. So Biden has done extraordinarily well. We did really well in the midterms, like stunningly well. And that was all on the backs of moderates. By the way, the House New Democrats, who are the, the moderates in the House, so far since 2016 have flipped something like 54 seats. That could be slightly inflated, but some large number of seats from red to blue. 
a combined look at the endorsements of our revolution and the Justice Democrats and brand new Congress and all the far left groups, they've flipped a combined zero seats. Perfect zero. Well, because in a swing seat, that's not likely to happen. It doesn't work. And they've cost us some seats where they've primaried either other candidates or incumbents and won the primary and then lost the general election. So it is very evident that it is the moderates who build the majorities, it is moderates who get things done, and we are being governed by a moderate. That all said, we are very alarmed by the brand of the Democratic Party. We did a big pre-election poll that looked a lot like what we saw from Stan Greenberg and from some public polling that came out right around the same time. When you ask people to put themselves on a scale, zero being very liberal, nine being very conservative, they put themselves just above five, which is dead center. So just to the right of five, which means they're slightly center right. And they put Republicans and Trump pretty far to the right and Biden and the Democrats pretty far to the left, but they put themselves closer to Trump and the Republicans than to us. And then the second big scary finding in there is that when you ask people which party is extreme in their views, the parties are even, despite the fact, as we discussed, and as all of your listeners believe, the Republicans have gone completely mad that they're a party of fascists and Democrats have some, you know, strange people with far out views, but they're a tiny minority. Nonetheless, the brand of the party is kind of driven by some of those people. And that is one of the big projects that we're undertaking for the next few years. So I don't remember who I was doing an interview with somebody last week. I don't remember who it was. And they asked about the Lincoln Project, like, where are you guys? And I said, we are pro-democracy. And they said, well, so you're centrist. I said, no. And they said, well, but I mean, between Trump and AOC, you've got to be somewhere in the middle. I said, here's the problem is that your X axis is wrong. I said, the pro-democracy movement is from AOC to Liz Cheney. The problem is that the Republican Party and Donald Trump are somewhere off near Mars, right? Like they don't live on that continuum. So like from our perspective, like we're not moderates, we're not centrist. We have one thing we do and that's what we do. But it's interesting that our earlier conversation about how people don't get it is like, the small D Democratic continuum does not exist with Donald Trump and the modern day Republican Party on it. But I would also say, and the listeners have heard this too, and you've experienced it probably firsthand, is the way that the parties break down 50-50 on who has more extreme views is that the Republican Party and the radical right have such an incredible advantage when it comes to communications and front groups and frankly money, right? They never stop. They never, ever, ever stop. I had Kyle Spencer on who wrote a book called Raising Them Right about the right-wing youth movement. And in, I think it was 27 or 2018, Matt, the right-wing affiliated group spent twice as much on college campuses as left-wing affiliated groups did or democratically affiliated groups did, which is, I think, remember that this is the game of small numbers, right? Which is more kids on college campuses likely to be left of center, even significantly left of center, but you don't need all of them. And if you plant seeds there, you know, if it's, 25,000 kids on a campus and you got 10% of them, right? That's enough to start moving numbers down the line because they're going to vote away. They're going to socialize their kids that way. They're going to start building those communities. And so I always find it fascinating that it is one of not just belief, right? And look, things like defund the police, right? Like we'll be climbing out from under that for God knows how long, right? But the reason why it's so effective is because Republicans have ubiquitous outlets and they say it over and over and over and over again and now we know it's like who's the best of the worst not the best of the best in a lot of these things and it's like i used this the other day remember at the end of casino like what about so and so oh he's a marine 
but why take the chance, right? And then the next thing you know, it's a bad day in a parking lot. Yeah, look, the right-wing echo chamber is so unbelievably effective. To your point, it's the groups that are starting them young. It's the million affiliates. They just never stop. And then, of course, it's the big ones. It's Fox and it's Breitbart and all of their affiliates. So they do an amazing job of taking, there are basically six members of the squad currently, and they make it seem like there's 600 of them and that they're everywhere. And the radicals in my party have very loud megaphones. One of them almost became our nominee twice. Another one has millions and millions of social media followers and is on television all the time. So their voices are just louder than the voices of the moderates. Unlike them, I am not wishing that they would go away or shut up. They have every right to do what they're doing. They think I should go away and shut up, but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> sure. But, you know, Jesse Jackson once said a party needs two wings to fly or the Democratic Party does. And I believe that. But the problem is, in the old days, the Democratic Socialist in the Senate or the, you know, the radicals in the House would be on the floor yelling into C-SPAN cameras. And now they've got millions of followers on social media and they're being amplified by Fox. And so they become the voice of the party in some ways that makes it hard for even Biden to compete. And that's the problem. Well, and there's a significant amount of anti-establishment furor and feeling there, too. And look, I mean, the establishment is never popular because it's the establishment, <laughs> right? Like nobody ever likes the principal. It's like, oh, who do you, you like the guy who runs the school or the gal that runs the school and make sure everything goes on time and, you know, make sure classes start on time. The bell rings. Kids go to detention. Kids go to gym class like, you know. They can be inspiring occasionally, but more often than not, they're telling a bunch of teenagers to do things they don't otherwise want to do, right? Yeah. As a member, I suppose, of the establishment, having been, you know, here oh, a you long are, time. You are a card-carrying member. I mean, I, and I, I yes. work at a think tank, for God's sakes. Like, I suppose I am, but I think it's important to emphasize that, yes, anti-establishment fervor is easy to whip up. And for sure, there's populism on both sides that comes around the back and meets on more occasions than people might think. I mean, the radicals in my party and the radicals on the right don't agree on a lot of things, but they do agree on some. And one of them is that people like you and I are bad and have screwed everything up and that anything that we touch is evil. And that really has an impact. But I think, you know, the, the extremists on the right still want to win at all costs. In fact, Republicans, that's what they want to do. They want to win. And they usually, given half a chance, they'll find a way. What I've noticed, though, about the progressive side, though, I don't want to criticize it because I, I don't want to criticize something I don't understand, is they're willing to take the loss simply on principle, even if they had to know that a given position was broadly unpopular, that it might cost other big D Democrats their seats because of purity. And I think that, look, purity is great, but it doesn't exist. And so how do you square that where, like, if you don't win the race, you don't make the change. And also, as I've said this probably five times in the last two months now, like as the well-known moderate Saul Alinsky said, if you get from zero to 30, you're not 70% behind, you're 30% ahead of where you started. Now, if Alinsky thinks that, why isn't that getting down to the progressives in the House or who are out there? Well, remember, the follower of Alinsky in politics is Barack Obama, not, <laughs> not AOC. Listen, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you're exactly right. The perfect is the enemy of the good with radicals on both sides. And ideology trumps practicality every time. And people like me who keep saying, hey, um, inconvenient but true, 
got to win elections if you want to have any power and do anything. They just think we have lost our you know, moral bearing. And you can see it over and over. I mean, let's take Medicare for all. Medicare for all is never going to become law, not you know, in my grandkids' lifetime. But this is a thing that they will point to over and over and over, despite the fact that it is deeply unpopular and absolutely never going to happen because ideology trumps practicality for them. And this is the whole debate in our party over what David Shore calls popularism. And, you know, guys like Matt Iglesias are saying, hey, maybe talk about things that people would like you to do in office and then try to do them rather than things that they hate. And to me, that sounds smart. And to them, it sounds like it's a sellout. Yeah, I just remember it was early 2005. George W. Bush had just been reelected. This is pre-Katrina when the wheels, I think, policy-wise anyway, truly fell off. And remember, the first big thing they pushed was privatization of Social Security. Oh, I remember. And it went over like a lead balloon. Yes, sir. Not just with Democrats, but with everybody. everybody. Yeah. I mean, Bush came in uh, to a second term with some big ideas. He was going to turn the Middle East into a democracy, and he was going to privatize Social Security, and he was going to change the tax system. And again, I get that that's an ideological point of view that a lot of people around him really held to, that they thought it would be better if we privatized Social Security. I thought that was nuts, but they thought it was smart. And that's a fair, old school kind of disagreement that you have in politics. Where there is no debate, though, is that that was an incredibly unpopular idea and everyone could see that coming and it just got him killed. I would say it isn't just the far left that does this, though. I mean, the purity tests on the far right are around Trump. And that's why you ended up with guys like Mastriano winning their primaries. Right. And I do think it is important to distinguish that the conversation we're having about the Democratic Party is one based on policy descriptions, whereas the debate we're having about the Republican Party is demagoguery, cultism, Trumpism, anti-democracy, authoritarianism, right? They're not both sides of the same coin. No, but it is interesting that both sides are willing to sacrifice wins. I mean, I don't know whether primary voters in Pennsylvania knew that they were putting the governor's race at risk or, or even the Senate race at risk when they voted for Mastriano and Oz in the primaries, but they were in ways that I think voters in certain House districts that nominated far-left candidates in swing districts were doing on the Democratic side. I do believe there is a distinction even there, though, which is the people that nominate a Mastriano and an Oz, remember, in Pennsylvania in particular, are the same people who gave 27% to Kathy for Truth, right, that nobody had ever heard of and didn't run a campaign and almost won at the last second, but for the entire rest of the Republican Party, you know, coming down on her in the last couple of weeks. And so the difference is, is those people don't care at the end of the day, because if they can't have their person, they don't want anybody. They're nihilists, right? They truly don't believe in anything, which is different, which is I think that I do believe this, although I could be wrong, that if you're a progressive voting for a progressive candidate in a primary, I think you're doing it because you think that that's the person who can and should be the person to represent the party in the best ways, not the worst ways, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And without a doubt, they're earnest and they believe, and I admire that to some extent. And there is absolutely no moral equivalence, none whatsoever between the far left and the far right. The far right is in favor of trashing American democracy in fundamental ways. The far left is in favor of some things that I think are unwise. <laughs> that is a big damn difference. And I do think you're right about the motivation of the voters. You mentioned Obama a minute ago. It's funny. The dear friend of mine 
who I go back with, you know, 15 years in politics, still works for Republicans. And, you know, a couple of weeks before the election, we were trading texts and we were going back and forth. And he said, well, yeah, except for like a moderate like Obama. And I wrote back a moderate like Obama, exclamation point, exclamation. And, and like, that's where we are. Right. Barack Obama is solidly in the middle now. You know, I mean, look, plenty of the wingers are still going to say he was born in Kenya and he's a socialist. He's a Marxist, all the other stuff. But the truth is, is that Barack Obama is a mainstream political figure now. No doubt about it. I mean, look, I've always thought Obama was fairly moderate. It's part of the reason a bunch of people on the left of my party really didn't trust him for a long time and look back differently at his presidency than people like I do. But if you listen to Obama now, and you know he did that interview with the Pod Save guys, where he was pretty explicit about his view of the far left of the party, and it isn't very favorable. I mean, he not only thinks that they are fumbling away some victories that we could have had because the positions they take are too radical, he thinks that the way they approach the world is turning people off and making them feel like we disdain them or think that they're racist. And he doesn't think that's smart. And I agree. He did another interview, I think it was some college kids in Chicago, maybe last year, even maybe in 2020. I can't remember, but he said, you're young, you're progressive. You want the hero. I get it. He said, but if you go looking for perfection in anybody, let alone a politician, you're always going to be disappointed. You're always going to be disappointed. And some friends of ours did a focus group with African-Americans in Philadelphia. They asked the group, the two people they admired most in American politics, you know what their answers were? Michelle Obama and Liz Cheney. <laughs> I mean, think about that. So I think that, you know, say what you believe, but back it up. It's okay to be unpopular on principle because there are more people who will be with you than against you. It's a different thing to say, I believe in this, you don't, therefore you are wrong and you are lesser because of it. Look, there are a lot of people in politics who are evil, but for the most part, voters mostly aren't, even the voters who are voting for people that we don't like. And I think what the Obamas understood, and by the way, they learned it the hard way, you know, Obama's crack about white voters clinging their guns and, and religion really hurt him. And obviously Hillary's thing about deplorables really hurt her. So we aren't perfect in this score, but I think for the most part, our kinds of politicians believe that people are redeemable, that believe that no one's perfect and no one's perfectly terrible, except for a handful of people that we can name. Many of whom would like to be president of the United States. <laughs> Indeed. And so we can't go around treating people as if that's how they are. Now, that said, I do think it is now abundantly clear that the MAGA style candidates are very fundamentally un-American. And if you vote for them, you do it knowingly, and I think that's a bad thing to do. I don't think that necessarily makes you a bad person, but I do think that's a bad thing to do. So let's fast forward here. In a couple of years, we're going to have the next most important election of our lifetime. And we keep having these. I'd like to have one that's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's fine. Right. Everything will be okay. Romney Obama. Exactly. Yes. Like as Stuart Stevens, a senior advisor here at the Lincoln Project said, who was the senior advisor, senior strategist for Mitt Romney, very tough campaign. And a campaign, remember that, you know, we always talk about Democrats fighting. Remember that Barack Obama could go out and give the most inspiring speech, you know, at the Brandenburg Gate to 350,000 people while telling his guys in Chicago, do what you got to do. Oh, yeah. And pushing an old lady <laughs> off a cliff, right? That was and, rough. 
it was rough. Yeah. But you know what? Like, it was what it was. But even Stewart said, when we lost, we didn't worry about going to bed at night saying Barack Obama is going to be president for four more years. And we wouldn't have either. I mean, you know, I was a very strong Obama supporter. But yeah, it wouldn't have occurred to me that the future of the republic is in doubt if Mitt Romney were president. So let's talk about the future republic. So part of the Democratic Party that decides on the primary calendar has made some changes. First and foremost, the most noteworthy, Matt, is that Iowa for the Democrats is off the table as far as being number one in 2024 for the first time in living memory. South Carolina looks likely to get the nod, and then it will go New Hampshire, Nevada, and then Michigan will be number four. Obviously, South Carolina was the place where Jim Clyburn endorses Joe Biden. Joe Biden sweeps to the nomination when I thought for sure that Bernie Sanders was going to be the nominee. So talk a little bit about what that means, because I sent it to you right before we started taping. Um, Sanders' campaign manager said, you know, he's a member of the delegates or whatever. He said he's going to vote against it because while Iowa's not representative enough, he doesn't believe that South Carolina is either. Well, yeah, and I think his point was that South Carolina is a red state and they support Republicans. And to be fair, it is true that this is a political process that is intended to put Democrats in the best possible position to win the general election. Which is the entire purpose of national party organizations. Exactly. So the DNC is under no obligation to do anything that anyone regards as fair with this process. It's only about what is going to produce the best possible candidate for us. And look, I think this change was long in coming. There were a bunch of problems with Iowa. It's small, it's red, it is all white, and it uses a caucus, which is fundamentally anti-democratic. And so it was time to get rid of Iowa. And the problem with New Hampshire, of course, is that it's small and all white also, even if it uses a primary. So it was beyond time for Democrats to acknowledge that our party is very heterodox and has lots of people of color in it and lots of people who don't live in places like New Hampshire and Iowa. I think South Carolina was a good choice. They very sensibly slowed the Sanders train to a crawl last time and gave us a moderate who could beat Donald Trump and save the republic as a result. Which he did. Which he did. And I think that that was probably the right thing to do. And I'm glad they put Michigan up high as well, because Michigan's got lots of different kinds of people. It's a big state. It's got cities and counties and towns and villages, and it's got industry. It's got labor. And so I think having a southern state and a Midwestern state makes sense. I don't think it's a problem that South Carolina is a red state. I think there's enough Democratic heritage there, enough Democratic power there. I mean, the chairman of the party is from South Carolina. The number three guy in the House is from South Carolina. We've already talked about the role that South Carolina played in making of the president in 2020. So I think it was a good choice. Well, it's also, I mean, it is Southern and it is Republican generally, but it also has a significant African-American community. Right. So it's not like the Iowa Democratic Party, which is, you know, maybe there is a minority component, but it is a minority of a minority. And look, you know, Nevada always gets short shrift as John Ralston, you know, famously, if Nevada always likes to say we matter. It is a diverse state as well, both demographically, economically. Right. Everybody talks about Clark County in, in Las Vegas, but you got to go up and win Washoe and Reno and somebody's got to go, you know, pound pavement in Elko, no matter how badly they don't want to. But I guess my question, too, is that for so long, it seemed like these primary calendars were sort of sacrosanct as far as the first three or four races. Is this something that the party could change every time if it wanted to? Definitely. I don't think anybody's going to chisel anything into granite anymore. I mean, remember, Iowa was made by Jimmy Carter in 1976 just by grit. I mean, he just went out there and made it happen 
No one had ever heard of him. His first event there drew three people and he just basically lived in Iowa and it worked. And sometimes that works, but sometimes it doesn't. Chris Dodd went and lived in Iowa also, and he famously is not president and never has been. So Iowa often picks the winner and it often does not. And I think it is beyond time to move on and try other things. I think in the end, the likelihood is if we get to a point at which retail politics of the type that Democrats have always done in Iowa and New Hampshire, which is to say house parties and small events and really getting to know people, if that doesn't feel like an important part of the system, then I think we're going to move to states like Michigan being even earlier, where it's going to be more wholesale. You know, I've heard with my own ears, voters in Iowa and New Hampshire say, I'm not sure I'm going to vote for him because I've only met him a couple of times. And, you know, I get that that is a appealing Rockvillian way of thinking about how we pick our leaders, but it may not be practical. Well, I would also say that, you know, South Carolina is bigger than Iowa. But, you know, if you've spent any time in Orangeburg, right, like plenty of small towns out there. Totally. And I think that's why they put it ahead of Michigan, because this is a chance to continue with some retail politics. You know, there are a couple of cities in South Carolina, but they're not huge, Charleston and Columbia. And then you can do some retail there. And I think the experiment will be, is that necessary to the process? Yeah, look, and, you know, the weather's better and the food's better, but that's neither here nor there. All right, so let's go to the other side of the aisle. So Donald Trump has already announced, and about the parties, and I think this is an important thing to remember, political parties are private organizations that exist for the purpose of nominating candidates to political office. They are not publicly held trusts. They take private money. They can also take corporate money, but they do, you know, they take individual contributors. They set their rules for how they operate at the national level, and all the states have their things. And so, you know, you talked about how the DNC is shifting their primary calendar. You flip to the Republican side of the aisle, and everybody's like, oh, Trump's, you know, in trouble, in trouble, in trouble. But Trump owns most of these people in most of these states, right? Remember, I think in South Carolina, they didn't have a primary in 2020. They gave him their delegates by acclamation. He owns the state party of Ohio. You know, he will own the state party in probably New Hampshire, maybe in Iowa. Right. And do you think the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, is really going to be like, you know, tell the state party chair of Iowa, like, don't help Trump because the state party chair, the first thing he's going to do is pick up the phone and call Mar-a-Lago and say, hey, by the way, Kim Reynolds said this. Right. And then, you know, she doesn't want that trouble. And so it's interesting that for all of Trump's other chaos, the people around him have been very methodical about using his power within the Republican Party to ensure a lot of loyalty in places like a secretary of state where very few people understand how it works. And most people don't want to or don't need to, but could make a, an uphill climb for any of these people out there who think they could run against him. I certainly agree with all that. I think Trump is beyond the odds on favorite at the moment. And, you know, the DeSantis boomlet, we've seen this before. You know, there have been boomlets. Hey, listen, man, you know what? White boots got you off the hook. Exactly. Uh, the white boot. If you haven't seen the picture of Ron DeSantis in his white boots, Google it. It's right. unbelievable. <laughs> uh, and what Reed was referring to is I was involved in Mike Dukakis wearing a helmet, which was bad, but not as bad as the white boots. Not as bad as the white boots. But I will say to your point about his control of the party, if you're wondering about whether Donald Trump still has control of the party, Look at the howling silence from Republicans in response to him saying that we should basically tear up the Constitution. It is truly 
unbelievable, except it is entirely believable, which has been the whole thing with Trump from the beginning. The other thing to keep in mind is that the rules of the Republican nominating process really helped Trump in 2016, and they're going to really help him again in 2020, especially if all these clowns are going to run against him, like Nikki Haley and Pence and others, because it's winner take all. And so it's going to be Trump and not Trump. And if the not Trump forces divide up the vote, Trump will get a plurality, and that's all he needs to win the delegates. Listen, I'm happy to be wrong. I would love to be wrong. I would love for him to lose, right? Literally nobody in the world other than probably Rick wants Trump to lose more than I do, right? Lose a primary. But, you know, people are like, oh, he only needs 30%. Like, only needs 30%. He's going to get 50. <laughs> like, probably what are you talking about? Right. If it's head to head, he's still going to win because he can win a majority. But if it's not head to head, he's almost certainly going to win because it's not like people are thinking, well, I'm going to choose between this interesting array of candidates. No, they're going to be like, I want Trump or I don't want Trump. I'll pick one of these people. That's exactly right. And this is where they don't understand. It's, you know, first of all, it's not about policy and maybe it hasn't been for a long time, but I think you're right. And it's not just the non-Trump, it's the anti-Trump candidate. Once you get in against him, you are the anti-Trump candidate or an anti-Trump candidate. And again, just my cursory view without any significant research applied says that the average Republican primary voter, not all that upset about him having dinner with Kanye West and some guy, Nick Fuentes, who they've never heard of. These are the same people who who nominated, to your point, Carrie Lake, who almost won. Adam Laxalt in Nevada, who almost won. Tim Michaels in Wisconsin, who almost won. Like These are not people who've gone, oh, yeah, who's the best choice for me? Herschel Walker or some accountant from Buckhead? You know, the, account, the white accountant from Buckhead might win, but they chose Herschel Walker. And I think the other thing, too, is not only the deafening silence, the yawning silence, but also the idea that the whole establishment donor set, D.C. set, has tried to blame Trump for 2022. When all these other idiots campaigned and endorsed all these same people. Why? Because they wanted to make sure that in the off chance Trump didn't run, that they had entree into that world because they know they can't win without it. Right. And I think that to me, Matt, is the most upsetting, which is their silence speaks volumes, but it also further drives the party away from being a pro-democracy body or even a body that cares about democracy or the rule of law or anything in the future because they have to live in the present. Everything has to be a culture war. Everything has to be critical race theory. Everything has to be trans. Everything has to be this or that. Because why? Because if we have to have solutions for people, then government has a reason to exist. And I think a lot of people don't believe it has a reason to exist. That's exactly right. And nothing makes that clearer than watching some of these people dance when they're pressed on this. So Bill Barr goes on television and says, yeah, I think he's done things that Justice Department could indict him and convict him of these crimes. Oh, all right. Well, if he's the Republican nominee for president, will you vote for him? Oh, well, yes, I, I would certainly vote for him. Um, and the same exact thing happened with some House member whose name I can't remember is a moderate goes on one of the shows and says, I think we should move on. You know, and when he's pressed about the destroying and of the Constitution statement, he says, well, you know, Trump says a lot of things. Well, would you vote for him? He's your nominee. And this is a purported moderate in the House Republican Conference. Well, yes, I would. I would certainly support him. So that's the only thing that matters. All the other stuff is noise. If the answer to the question, would you support him if he were the Republican nominee for president is yes, you are anti-democratic, small d, period. And I think that's the case that we have to prosecute against Republicans the next year. Yeah. And I just, you know, one thing as we think about moving into 2024 is it is a 50-50 country. We are down the middle. And again, Matt, as we 
take this back to our, the beginning of our conversation. In our experience, it shouldn't be, and it shouldn't even be close, but it is. And remember that Trump got 61 million votes to win in 2016, but that was two hugely unpopular candidates broadly. He got 14 million more votes in 2020. Now, he lost, thank God, but he got 14 million more votes. And so now 2020, like anybody who thinks Trump is a doofus, Trump's an idiot, he's too crazy, like I got a bridge to sell you. Like none of this is over. None of this is over. Nobody votes for more than a year in the nominating process. If you think that people are going to be cogitating on what he meant for the governor's race in Pennsylvania more than a year from now, you're nuts. Like none of that's going to matter. His flat announcement speech isn't going to matter. He's going to spend the next year and a half pounding the living hell out of all of his opponents in ways that he is incredibly capable of doing. And he is without question the odds on favor to be the Republican nominee, and he will be a very formidable candidate in the general election. Last question, just leaning back on our experience in places like Iowa, South Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, you know, any primary contest. Why is it that you think that the people who are surrounding the not Trump candidates, why do you think that they don't understand that the way that Trump campaigns makes the entire process different and that they're probably, as you know, still out there trying to recruit people in Iowa, trying to recruit people in New Hampshire, trying to buy off Henry McMaster in South Carolina, whatever goes on in the dirtiness of these places. Like they're still going to run conventional campaigns against the fundamentally unconventional candidate. And as I think even his people have said, Trump likes being the outsider back to the anti-establishment piece, right? These people are all recently in office or in office, right? They're the establishment. Now he will be able to run as the outsider, but why don't you think they're able to understand that the political dynamics of campaigning against this guy are just completely different than anything else. Even now, almost eight years into this, why don't they get it? I don't know that they don't get it. It may just be that they don't know any other way and they don't have a choice. It reminds me of Polish cavalry officers in 1941 riding their horses into battle against the Wehrmacht. I mean, like they were going to get massacred and all they had were a bunch of horses. And I think that the problem for these folks is that they are in the same position that Jeb and Rubio and others were in in 2016, except worse because he's much more powerful now. And you look back at 2016, there was the let's ignore him and he'll go away strategy. And there was the let's try to beat him in his own game strategy. And both of those failed miserably. So it's not clear to me if I were running one of those campaigns, God help me, what I would do. Right. Well, we have an idea what to do, but they don't listen to us anymore. Right. So, all right, Matt, before we let you go, where can our listeners find you online and where can they find out more about Third Way? I am on Twitter at Third Way Matt B, and we are at thirdway.org on the web. All right. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Matt Bennett, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, 
visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.